Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, your go-to orthopedic podcast that you share with all of your friends, staff, colleagues, etc., to learn about orthopedic knowledge and to, you know, kind of just, you know, be entertained, too. They, people say they like they like our banter. If you may not know, my name is Dr. Cole, and I'm a, accompanied here by my co-host. Yeah, man, it's uh, I'm Jay, and of course they like our banter, man. Have you heard how smooth my voice is, bro? Like this is uh, <laughs> yeah, some, this you know, is just what they need. Jay gets delusional, you know. Gets uh, a little out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know, you know, if it's your first time listening, sometimes he, his mind just it just moves a little too quick before he, you know, what to think about what he's gonna say. But uh, oh man, <laughs> but uh, uh, Doctor Fitz, man, what, what, what's going on? What, what, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know, man. I'm kind of excited about this this talk. You know, this is somebody from the home, the hometown. This is uh, somebody back from my home, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just pretty happy about that. We finally, I don't know, is this our first one from UAB? Yeah, I think this might be our first yeah. guest from UAB. And, uh, you know, like I say, this is my hometown. And uh, me and him, we're, we were able to talk a little bit about the city and what he thought about the city and, you know. I don't get to talk yeah. about Birmingham too often out here in uh, Cincy, so it, it was what? good. The only one, other ones that I remember, I think Dr. Hogan, we mentioned a little bit about uh, Alabama, because Dr. Ho- McAllis Hogan, he, he he did our episode on Liz Frank injuries. Yep. And uh, I remember you guys you guys had a moment about Alabama there. I think Dr. Uh, Amit Mamaya, I think he I think he was also UAB as well. Uh, uh, I think so. Maybe. Maybe. I think so. We got uh, this we is got such a good Birmingham. thing, man. This is like a good thing. Like we we get to the point where we can't remember everybody. I remember when we first started, it was like, man, uh, geez, we need somebody for the show. Where are we going to find someone? And uh, now it's like, man, it's like it's hard to get them all scheduled. So this has really been uh, a great thing that's that's been happening. Yeah, Um, we appreciate all the guests that come on. uh, Dr. Maya, Dr. Hogan, everybody else that's listening. That's been a previous guest. Thank you for coming on and talking. The people love it and they are here for more. And to our listeners, guys, this is, we always appreciate you guys. So the new ones, thanks for coming. And for everybody who's been kind of steadily trekking along with us, hey, thanks, guys, for listening in every week. Uh, we make this happen for you guys, and we hope we're helping you. So for today's show, we have another good one in store. Like I said, this is a physician at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Dr. Clay Spittler. Uh, he did his residency at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, and he did his fellowship in uh, trauma at Harborview Medical Center. Uh, he's now on staff at UAB. He did an amazing talk for us on distal femurs, uh, another high yield topic. If anyone on the trauma service, so you're going to see it at a at a level one. You're going to see it, and it's good to know how to uh, go about treating these types of fractures. So uh, let's just get straight into it. And you guys will enjoy this and leave some comments at the at the end if you get a chance. So thank you guys. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Spiller, welcome to the Nailed It podcast. So happy to have you on and looking forward to this uh, this talk for today. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, again, thanks for being here. And I think we just wanted to go ahead and kick this off with some general questions, getting to know you as a person. Uh, maybe maybe hear a little story time. I don't know. We'll see how this goes. Um, 
but you know, one first question we have for you is, um, what's your favorite part of trauma? You know, I know we know you. Yeah, that's a, kind of, that's, trauma a, surgeon. that's a tough question. I think, um, <laughs> you know, from a technical standpoint, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, paratecular fractures around the knee, particularly. Um, but also, I, th- you know, like most trauma surgeons, not all, but most uh, really enjoy poking out cyber surgery. Um, you know, really like all of it, you know, maybe the proximal humerus and patellar are my, my least favorite, but uh, hopefully I'm passable at those those cases, too. Um, in terms of sort of the more philosophical uh, side of trauma, I really, you know, enjoy the opportunity to see people when they're kind of at their lowest and see them, you know, maybe a year later and they're, you know, walk into your office and give you, you know, shake your hand or give you a hug, at least pre-COVID anyway. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and thank you for, for helping them get back on their feet. And that's sort of the, the most rewarding part, I think, of it is seeing people when they're really broken and have them come back and uh, and be, you know, function doing their normal daily thing again yeah i think that's pretty cool get some some gratification uh and you know now it's probably just a head nod since covid uh maybe, since COVID maybe a little dab around. every, every once in a while. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, we're um, doing the elbow bump out here that's right um, uh, <laughs> yep elbow bump has been been pretty uh active lately so um let's see on, on the next question what's some advice that you would give yourself in well, what was some advice that you would count if you could go back and give yourself in residency? Man, I think um, in residency, just soak it all in is sort of the biggest thing. It's, you know, go in with an open mind. You know, some people were, since the time they were 12 years old, knew they were going to be the next Jimmy Andrews and they're going to scope famous people's knees. But um, I think as best you can, you know, try to keep an open mind and see all the specialties. I do think that we end up, um, our mentors play a huge role in the particular subspecialties that we like. And so choose wisely when you choose a mentor in your residency program, uh, you know, someone that you respect in terms of, you know, their day-to-day life, both, both their technical skill, but also the way they treat the people around them, because that's really important, I think. And that's one of the things that uh, will take you far, no matter what kind of practice you have is you know treating the people that you work with at the hospital with with a significant amount of respect and they will go out of their way to make your life easier for you those are uh, those are true lessons you know I, i've seen it firsthand and um I'm, I'm glad you said that and you know i'm glad that that was mentioned something to, for everybody always to think about and, and take part of that and incorporate that into their lives and so for the last question we have you know it's kind of a it's, this is actually, I don't think this is a question we've asked before, but what's the kind of the craziest residency story or, or case that you remember that you, that you had? You, you're like, oh man, I remember this case. It's oh, yeah. crazy. So I, I very vividly remember uh, when I was taking junior resident call, um, I got called to the trauma bay um, and they, they legit rolled a guy in who had a traumatic, an open traumatic amputation through his hemipelvis, so through his symphysis and his uh, SI joint on the left. Uh, and they rolled him from the helicopter pad to the trauma bay for like exactly 30 seconds and then straight to the operating room. Um, to, and he actually, he lived and he got himself kind of a, I don't really know what you even call that prosthetic. I don't think they have a name for it cause they don't really exist, but it's kind of like a bucket that he sits in. And, uh, oh, and he actually, you know, he made a, he spent about a month in hospital and another month in rehab, but he, um, he made it. And I actually ended up seeing him in clinic, uh, which is one of the, in, in residency, at least where I was a resident, we had 
you, know, you don't see a ton of the patients in follow-up. I think I saw him like a year later when I was back on the service and uh, he kind of came, I don't know that you would call it strutting in, but he, he walked in <laughs> on the prosthetic. Um, and all in all, you know, obviously his life's different forever, but uh, that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Some of the craziest pictures I've got for sure. Wow. Yeah. So that's, you get so many crazy stories in, in residency. And I guess that's probably, you know, one of the good things that you can look back and when you think about how hard you was working and all, you know, but the, the experience that you got, the patients that you saw, and even in that case, when you get to see them a, a couple of months later and they're doing better, I mean, that's pretty impressive. It makes you kind of feel, feel a little bit better about, about everything that you're doing. For sure. For sure. So, Luckily, I heard you say that periarticular uh, fractures are something that you really enjoy doing. So that's perfect for today's talk. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and start the case. Um, let's say we have a 35-year-old male who comes into the emergency department, uh, status post, MVC. Uh, he has a left knee, well, obvious left knee deformity. And this is like from an orthopedic doctor saying that, not just from the emergency department, because they, they'll try to trick you sometime. But it actually is an obvious deformity there, the left knee. Uh, there's some concern with his uh, distal pulses. And uh, so far on that, we got a, we get an x-ray and it shows that he has a distal third comminuted uh, distal femur fracture. Kind of where do we go as far as the, the workup, as far as the H&P for this patient? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you have a patient who's in a high energy uh, MVC or motorcycle or any high energy trauma, you know, the ABCs from the ATLS, you know, you shouldn't forget those just because you finished your intern year, uh, especially if you're at a place where you are sort of the first line instead of, you know, you and the ER doctor instead of being at a trauma facility. But, um, you know, so the ABCs are important uh, and that should be sort of the first thing you can do. And you can, usually you can do that pretty relatively quickly. Um, and then in terms of uh, assuming that all of those other things he's breathing and he's, you know, circulating, except maybe in his limb in his lower extremity, uh, then you can turn to the secondary survey and really get down to the nitty gritty of, uh, of the distal femur fracture and what's going on there. Um, and so in terms of the actual physical exam, you know, I think high on the priority list here is assessing his vascular status. And so the most objective way to do that is, is ABIs, ankle brachial index. Um, and that's, you know, there's some studies that show if you have, you know, symmetric pulses, then perhaps you don't have to worry about an ABI, but an ABI is always, it's always good to have an objective uh, measurement, I think, when there is some concern or some doubt about uh, of the vascular status of a limb. And, and that's, you know, relatively straightforward, relatively easy to do. Uh, and then if there is some concern and that you feel like the limb is shortened significantly or angulated, you know, certainly trying to pull the limb out to, you know, reasonably normal gross alignment and length uh, can sometimes get rid of a uh, potentially a, a kinked vessel or something like that that might be preventing them from having uh, normal perfusion distally. In terms of uh, you, know, you want to assess the soft tissue envelope, you know, the uh, around the distal femur, you, you know, it's not quite as much musculature as around further proximally. Um, and so, you know, it takes perhaps maybe slightly less energy to have an open fracture around the distal femur than say the femoral shaft. Um, but, you know, assessing the soft tissue envelope for any kind of open wounds, uh, even, you know, a, a small open wound is pretty indicative of a significant amount of uh, internal soft tissue trauma that took place. Uh, and so, you know, 
ABCs first, then assess the, the, I think the, the vascularity of the limb is important Then assess, you know, what is the fracture open or closed? That way you can promptly give antibiotics and tetanus if the fracture is open. Um, and that's sort of your general first look assessment. You certainly want to assess how their uh, motor and sensory function is below if they're awake enough to participate in an exam. Um, and then, you know, document all that appropriately. And, uh, you know, usually the way that we end up with things, we've got sort of a trauma shot, which is like one x-ray in the middle of sort of part of the secondary survey, but they don't really let you get great x-rays all the time. Uh, and then assuming the patient's stable, you get a little bit more thorough, uh, imaging studies in terms of, you know, full-length femur films join above and below the fracture to assess the entire limb, you know, secondary survey in terms of checking all the other extremities to see if they have any, you know, injuries that may be uh, distracted by this more obvious, uh, obviously, you know, painful, significant distal femur fracture. And you know what, I, you, you mentioned this like really early when you started talking about the workup and I actually think it's pretty, it's, it may not be high yield for, uh, a question, but in, in reality, in real life, when you're dealing with patient care, I think it, it, it becomes really important. You mentioned, you know, hey, just because you're not a first year anymore, or, you know, just because you're an orthopedic doctor, and they have all these emergency guys downstairs, don't forget to just do the, the ABCs and make sure they've been appropriately worked up uh, to look for any, you know, other injuries that that you would normally find from, you know, trauma working these patients up. And I think that's so important, because it all the time, even today, actually last night I was on call. And, uh, you know, if a patient comes on and, you know, it's an isolated, at least that's what you think, it's an isolated orthopedic injury. Yeah, that's what you think. That's what you think, right? But it's an isolated <laughs> right. injury. But then you look and you see, hey, they haven't gotten a CT pelvis. Hey, they didn't get a CT head. And, you know, this is older lady. She had a fall. And it, it does sound all kind of benign, like, oh, it's probably nothing. But you'll be surprised. Sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot for these people. And they could have uh, a slow brain bleed. And, you know, of course, it doesn't affect them until three or four o'clock when they're on your floor and you're right. the orthopedic doctor. And now you got to handle a head bleed. Like, yeah. you got to make sure these things are appropriately worked up. So, uh, for all the younger residents like myself, I'm not that old, <laughs> like myself, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, even some of the older guys who might just forget this, it's, it's very important. Even if you're busy down there, six or seven consults in. Uh, you need to make sure that that person that before you add them onto your team, before you take them to surgery, they need to be appropriately worked up for uh, all the injuries that they should for whatever the the mechanism or the injury that they're dealing with. And if it's high yeah, higher energy, what's that? No, I'm saying I'm, uh, little tears in my eye. I taught you well. You know, you're making me proud right now. But go go yeah. ahead, man. I'm, all right, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, I I agree 100. <laughs> I think uh, you know, especially you know, certainly now while you guys are residents, that's super important because you know that these patients go straight to you know they skip the trauma workup and because it looks like an isolated injury. But even more so when you're brand new in practice and you're you know, you're taking call and you're at the community hospital that also takes, you know, some trauma and you're kind of the guy, you know, there may not be a general surgery trauma guy who's right there every single time. So it really is important to, uh, to treat the whole patient and not just the broken, you know, the broken distal femur. Absolutely. I agree. And another high yield thing you mentioned is the vascular status. Always look out for that with these types of injuries. Doesn't take a whole lot to have some displacement and, uh, have some possible injury to the, the vascular structure. So AVIs are the way to go. Uh, you mentioned 
some of the x-rays that you would probably get for this uh, above and below uh, joint, the uh, above and below joints for this fracture as well. When are you getting um, CT imaging for these uh, fractures as well? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a little bit on a case-by-case -case basis. Honestly, you know, where I'm at, they usually show up and I show up to sign out and there's a CT. Um, and most of the time that's totally fine and totally appropriate. A really severely comminuted articular surface where the limb is, you know, really shortened and it's really going to be difficult even on the x-ray to tell how many shaft pieces are pushed down into the articular surface. I do think that in, in that rare circumstance, maybe given the choice, I would uh, either rescan that patient after I've done presumably an open fracture debridement and place them in an external fixer. Um, you know, I think you have a little bit better idea. Um, and, and so anytime I want to go to the operating room with a plan to fix the patient though, definitively, I need a CT scan beforehand. Now, if I know they're a polytrauma and they've got three extremities and their distal femur is open, I'm not going to dog anybody for not getting it until after the X fix, but anytime it's an isolated injury and there's a you know, better than even money chance that I'm going to be fixing that fracture. I need to know all of the articular components of that injury. And a CT scan is absolutely the best way to do that. And, and speaking about, you know, the, you know, the components of this injury and, you know, distal femur fractures in general, what are some of the, you know, cause when we're thinking about fixing them, we have to think about the relevant anatomy of the distal femur and how it may be a little bit different and the deforming forces. So can you just kind of quickly just go over like kind of some of the relevant Pertinal anatomy that that we need yeah. to uh, think of, and you know some of the deforming forces in these types of injuries as well. So I think you know first of all we we mentioned briefly earlier you know Hunter's Canal is really pretty close by, uh, and if you have a pretty significant fracture or a really displaced fracture that needs to be on your mind that they could have an SFA injury or even a popliteal artery injury uh, as it comes through the canal there. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind in terms of the bony anatomy. We can talk a little bit more about that when we talk about fixation, but in terms of the muscular anatomy, you obviously have the extensor mechanism uh, and your hamstrings and your adductors that are going to shorten the fracture. Um, you know, and then you've got the uh, the origin of the gastroc off the posterior femoral condyles that's going to pull that distal segment posteriorly and give you that apex posterior uh, angulation. Uh, and those are sort of the main things. You know, in terms of um, you know, that, that's the thing that they'll, they'll ask you, the thing that you have to know technically in the operating room, the, the sort of deformities that you have to anticipate when you go to, to fix the fracture. And because uh, a lot of times we're trying to do these with, you know, either indirect reduction or even a completely closed reduction, depending upon the severity of the fracture. And so you have to kind of be able to understand what to expect you're going to have to counteract to get that reduction. Uh, and, and so those are sort of the main things. Um, the, um, and you'll see the, uh, you know, the, in these really high energy ones, you know, motorcycles in particular, ATVs, high-speed ATVs, they'll often have either a patella fracture or some kind of MPFL or LPFL, if that's a thing, even, you know, a retinacular avulsion of the patella from this direct blow to the front of their knee. Um, that is something you can kind of pick up on. And if you I've, I've had a few patients, if you really, if you're not careful, they'll end up with a patella that maltracks. You did a great job fixing their distal femur and their patella doesn't track right after the fact. And either you rotationally, you either malrotated the femur or you missed something in terms of a, a, a retinacular injury in the patella in the, in the joint surface or excuse me, in the arthrotomy. 
Okay, so yeah, once again, like you, you brought up another good point uh, about the deforming forces. So I, I have a little funny story, and I won't never forget this now because I was maybe a, uh, I feel like I was an intern, and I wasn't planning on going to this case, so I had did no real pre-op study. And it was just like, hey, come in real quick. We need a hand. I'm like, well, all right, okay, let's go. So no, it's, it's a trap. It's a trap every time. <laughs> yeah. if, if if you can get out of, it, you might should think about it because <laughs> you're gonna get every question wrong, and they're gonna be wondering why. But uh, so, but anyway, one the attendant asked one question the whole case, and they asked me, what's the deforming forces that's causing this fracture to displace like this? And of course, it was the from the gastroc. So like we just mentioned about the gastrocs producing uh, apex posterior angulation. And I totally, I was, I could not figure it out at the time. Like, what is it that's going on here? So remember that, guys. But when you go into this case, keep that in mind. It's, it's a good chance it's going to come up as long as the question about the anatomy that we're going to touch on in a bit with uh, fixation. But moving on to treatment, Dr. Spittler, I, I guess we should, briefly touch on non-operative management what what uh i guess what are some of the indications for non-op treatment for these if at all man i tell you it's tough and i think um you know as we understand more and more about distal femur fractures in the more geriatric population we're coming to find out that they're really not that much different than a hip fracture in terms of you know the need to fix them so that people can mobilize even if it's you know that, that we're finding that the mortality rates after distal femur fractures is really pretty close to that of hip fractures. And so I think those are the only patients who are either potentially, you know, paraplegic or quadriplegic and have, uh, you know, a robust enough soft tissue envelope that you can treat them non-operatively. Uh, that would be one indication. And again, that's not a very common patient. And then I think the patient who's really too unwell to undergo anesthesia uh, in my book is really the only, those are sort of the only two times I'll, I'll, you know, you know, obviously I'll talk to the patient about the risks of surgery uh, every time, but you know, if it's my grandmother, you know, she's 92, she walks around her, her place and she gets out of the house a couple times a week, you know, she falls and breaks her distal femur. I'm going to encourage her to have surgery um, because the, you know, the, the downtime and the complications associated with with being stuck in the bed because that's what that's the reality is these geriatric patients if you put them in a cast or even if you can keep them in a in a hinge brace but you can't you know put weight on that limb then you're stuck in the bed you know you're yeah. able to transfer maybe but you're really you're sitting in a wheelchair you're stuck in the bed um and there, there's a lot of morbidity to that so you know those would be the only patients i would really consider it in and it's potentially a good option for some people. Um, but that would be the rare minority for, uh, for my practice anyway. Um, and then in terms of operative treatment, you know, I'd say it's, you know, probably 98% of the, of the patients with distal femur fractures, I'm going to tell them, I think you should have surgery. I'm certainly not going to force them, but I think that in terms of your outcome, you know, you're going to be better off for having, having had surgery. And then especially in that geriatric population, I'm going to do my very best to give them a construct that they can weight bear on. Um, and that's not always possible, but um, particularly if they have a really commonly articular surface, but uh, I'm probably going to do everything I can to let an, an elderly patient weight bear immediately after surgery. And, and do you typically, I know we kind of skipped over it, but for classifications, do you typically just do your, you know, uh, your OTA classification systems when you're thinking about your distal femur and then use that as a treatment guide for your operative management? 
uh, in part, I think, I think you're right. I think that there's not another, you know, uh, eponymous is a fancy word for someone's name, but, you know, an eponymous classification system for the distal femur that's as effective as the OTA classification. So I think, you know, the simple ABCs uh, are help me understand uh, the fracture as well, if not better than anything else that's out, out there. And so that's what I use when I'm talking to residents over the telephone or something like that. Um, but yeah, you know, just the A's being the extra articular fractures, B's being the partial articular fracture, and the C's being the complete articular fractures. And Dr. Spittler, uh, actually, I, I, I like to take the time out to teach young, young Cody on the line with us some a few things and uh you mentioned something that he probably doesn't know just yet and no but really i think a lot of people you a lot of people probably don't know this and i think i recently just kind of ran across it uh but you you mentioned how this particular fracture type uh has a pretty high mortality mortality like uh some of the hip fractures you see in the older population and i think what i saw was more so referencing the um uh periprosthetic distal femur mm -hmm. fractures. But I yeah. just thought that was uh, worthwhile of mentioning because that is something to consider. The mortality rate is pretty high with these, something similar to what you see with the uh, femoral necks and the intertropes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I think uh, that's going to be sort of uh, uh, not a, it's a new focus anyway. I think people are kind of recognizing that anytime you, you make a, a geriatric patient non-weight bearing, uh, that has pretty significant consequences. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, but we, we're sort of recognizing that we need to do everything we can to, to allow these folks to weight bear as early as possible and get fixed in a timely manner so that they're not laying in the bed waiting two, three, four days to get surgery. All right, perfect. And um, so I think that's a, a great way to go ahead and transition into the operative treatment. So how do we actually uh, how do we actually, you know, treat these? Like what we talk about operative treatment, we decide we're going to the operating room. How do we decide what kind of implant we're going to use? You know, does it depend on the type of fracture, like type A versus type B? Um, so kind of, can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, certainly starting with sort of a big picture idea here, if it's a multi-trauma or multi-extremity polytrauma patient, you know, there are times where I might stage a distal femur fixation if they've got, say, a contralateral femur shaft and a tibia or whatever it may be. Um, I want their distal femur surgery, you know, which if it's a complex articular injury may take me a while. I don't want to feel pressured by anesthesia saying, you know, the patient's lactate's going up. You know, I want a, a controlled operative setting to do this, uh, this potentially complex fracture. So that's sort of part one there in terms of how I choose the implant or implants that I'm going to use. I think, again, you have to take a little bit of the patient uh, characteristics into consideration. So uh, for the more frail patient, um, who is going to have a hard time not being able to weight bear? I might consider um, you know, even a nail and a plate. I think both are certainly options um, in terms of looking at all distal femur fractures, and there are certain fracture characteristics that might steer me one way or the other. Um, but I think that both both can adequately treat most distal femur fractures. Um, if you do a good job technically. Um, and so I think there are a few caveats to that. Um, you know, if you're going to choose a nail, um, 
then you have to have a fairly non-comminuted or intraconylar notch where the start point is. Um, and so that would be sort of one sort of disqualifier because if I've got to put a lot of interfragmentary screws across a comminuted interconylar notch, it's hard to not box yourself out from a nail starting point. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, I think more a, a, as we get further down the road, I think that we're starting to see more aggressive or extreme nailing cases um, as the implant technology improves and as our understanding of the fractures improves as time goes by, you know, we are seeing more, uh, you know, pretty distal femur fractures being treated with nails. Um, and I think that, you know, you can, you can do that pretty successfully with, you know, put a joint together with an independent lag screws and then place a nail. Um, particularly if you control, you know, the, uh, the forming forces with your, both your reduction and then potentially even uh, blocking or polar screws. Um, so, you know, in general, an A type fracture for me, uh, I'm probably going to try to nail it. There's some, you know, closed box periprosthetic fracture. Obviously you can't nail that fracture. Um, and that's gotta be a plate, um, at least a lateral lock plate, if not at times a secondary medial plate occasionally. Um, but for a type fractures, most of the time, you know, I'm trying to nail that fracture. Now for a B type fracture, you, you pretty much, unless it's truly non-displaced and you're going to try to kind of get away with, you know, some percutaneous lag screws, uh, you might be able to do that. Anytime you feel like you, anytime you say out loud, I'm going to try to get away with this. That's usually probably not a very good idea. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> um, so in general, a, a B type fracture um, it is a, a buttress plate for me, um, whether it's medial or lateral side. The uh, one sort of caveat to that is the isolated Hoffa or posterior coronal plane fracture. There's really not a, not a way to adequately put a buttress plate on those, on those uh, fractures. And so those are typically independent uh, lag screws. Um, plus or minus, you know, depending upon where they exit and what surgical access I have, um, you know, potentially you can put a plate that's not really functioning as a buttress plate. It's really more of a neutralization plate, uh, where you already lag the joint and you've got screws sort of anterior and a small plate and screws into the half a piece posteriorly. To yeah, I was just going to say, so you, so you, uh, you put your screws anterior to posterior when you're, when you're, um, fixing that half a fragment, correct? Pretty much every single time. Yeah. There's really not a good way to surgically access that posterior part of the femur um, and also have access to the rest of it. Now there, I'm sure that someone has done it. And, uh, but I think in terms of the morbidity, both, both, I think it's number one adequate fixation to allow for early motion um, and also avoids pretty significant morbidity when you have to take down the gastrox and deal with the vessel and, or the uh, perineal uh, nerve. Right. Okay. And, and to take a couple steps back, since you was mentioning it before, with extreme nailing, because mm -hmm. uh, us orthopods, we really do like to nail things. And I know the the different um, the different constructs that we use are changing, and they have some that are for distal femur fractures and things like that. But you know, is there a number like uh, how much 
uh, how much length do you need in that distal fragment to uh, to be able to get the nail and get your yeah. lock screws across and things like that? Sure. I mean, so I think um, for me, you know, and I don't know that there is a hard and fast answer I, I, to that question, to be fair. Um, I think that uh, for me to use a nail as a standalone implant, I'd like to have, you know, probably three points of fixation in that distal segment. And that's probably just to make me feel better. Um, probably two is enough. I think you absolutely have to have at least two to have rotational control of that segment. Um, but for me, I'm a little bit more comfortable with three. Now, that being said, when I use a nail and a plate, um, I'm okay with just having one point of fixation because I have rotational control uh, via, via my lateral locked plate. Okay. If the, if they have the the plate in the nail, are you letting them weight bear immediately or uh, uh, on on a case by case basis? Yes. If they had a really severe articular injury, then pr probably not. Um, if they had a simple split, and you know, for so for me, if they had a really short segment but a simple articular injury, um, and no metaphyseal bone loss, and they're not morbidly obese, then yeah, I'm probably letting them weight bear. Um, you know, for me, the, the nail and the plate is sort of, uh, the new kid on the block in terms of, you know, that and sort of dual plating are the, the new ideas about, you know, maximizing our fixation because of some of the problems associated with, you know, lateral lock plating and isolation and, uh, some of the reported non-union rates as high as 30%. Um, now that's not been my personal experience, but I do think that, um, in terms of the nail and the plate, I kind of put them that and dual plating in the category of augmented fixation so that you can either let them weight bear or if they have a segmental defect that you're going to do some kind of an induced membrane bone grafting into that defect, that construct is going to last for a lot longer. You know, you're going to get fatigue failure of, of every single implant we use if the bone doesn't heal. It doesn't matter if it's a nail plate, dual plate, whatever. So, you know, eventually if the bone doesn't heal, you're going to get fatigue failure. But if I know that it's going to take a long time to heal because they have lots of health problems or because they have a segmental defect and I need to graft. Or on the other side, if they're morbidly obese and it's going to be really impossible for them to be up and out of their wheelchair without cheating some, if I tell them to put be non-weight bearing and I've got a 450 pounder that I've got pounded on a lateral lock plate, yeah. usually, usually, usually the plate doesn't win. Um, and so those are the considerations I try to think about as, and the, the case we mentioned earlier with the, the more elderly patient who's going to have a really hard time being non-weight bearing. So if you tell them they have to be non-weight bearing, they're just resign themselves to sitting in the bed or sitting in a wheelchair, but it allows me to have my patients more mobile, um, earlier. And I think that's really important. Now, now since you, you spoke about nailing for type a, and then you just, uh, previously just mentioned, you know, the use of plates for type B. Could you quickly just go over, you know, like, you know, because there's different plates, like a blade plate or the list plate or yeah. the, you know, these lateral lock plates sure. that are contoured to the anatomy of the distal femurs. Can you kind of just quickly like touch base on, on these different types of plating options? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of uh, the partial articular fractures, I don't know that you need a specialty, you know, an anatomically contoured plate. 
uh, I think you need an appropriately placed buttress plate and that plate doesn't even necessarily have to be massively stiff. You know, so for me, that's oftentimes either a small, it's usually a small fragment plate, uh, whether it's, you know, and, and really there's no good indication for locking screws in that circumstance, right? As long as you reduce the articular surface and you put your buttress, if you think about that buttress plate, and the apex screw that goes right at the top of that fracture at the at where it exits in the condyle, you know, that, that screw is acting like your thumb and that plate is acting like your thumb and it's going to hold that fracture in there. Um, and you know, after you've, after you've secured it, you really, there's not many indications in my mind to use lock and screws in the distal segment or in the shaft. It's certainly, you know, more expensive uh, with, uh, in most cases I would say, little benefit. Now in terms of the A type fractures that you need to plate and the C type fractures that you need to plate, you know, every company under the sun has a lateral locking femoral plate. Um, some of the newer generation uh, plates have the capability to be uh, variable angle or, you know, polyaxial or whatever the company's nomenclature is to, to be able to use usually a 10 and sometimes a 20 degree cone of motion to be able to aim screws around, you know, independent lag screws or around a box or around any, a nail in some cases. Um, and that distal, distal fixation is, allows you to kind of steer rather than having the nominal fixed angle locking screws you know, where you screw in a locking tower and you drill a hole that only has one trajectory that's going to lock into the plate. Um, so those are sort of, you know, and those are continuing to evolve as well in terms of how we uh, use them and how we understand them. Um, one thing I would caution, you know, any anytime you use a variable angle locking screw, um, you know, the most, the most biomechanically sound locking screw construct is going to be in that nominal position where the threads and the screws line up. Um, if you go a little bit off axis, you, you may still get the plate to, or excuse me, the screw to lock into the plate, but it's not quite as good as if you had done it through the guide. Uh, so use the nominal, nominal, uh, guides when you can and use the variable angle guides when you have to. Yep. You gotta keep your eye on your uh, trajectory and, uh, Make sure you don't lose your uh, your aim. That's something I, I'm still working on to this day. Um, but um, so you you mentioned about um, using locking lateral plates and things like that. I think this is probably a, a good time to talk about the anatomy that you have yeah. to look out for with these type fractures. So say you know we got the fluoro and we're looking at that that screw we just placed and it looks like and we're we're pretty much we're at the condyles and it looks perfect on the on the on the AP mm -hmm. of the fluoro. Uh should we be concerned is it too long is it too short? Anything, can you kind of tell yeah, us about I mean, that? Yeah, I think you know like like you you know like you're mentioning there it depends on where you are anterior to posterior and I think the, the understanding of this part of the distal femoral anatomy really starts with the CT scan you know when you look at the distal femur in the axial plane um, you know, the medial articular surface. And you know, if you draw a line across the posterior condyles and you draw a line down the medial femoral condyle uh, at the level of the epicondyle, on average, that's about 25 degrees. 
Um, and then on the lateral side, it's not, uh, it's not as steep as that. It's roughly 10 degrees. And so that's something you have to keep in mind. Um, you know, when you're placing screws from lateral to medial, if you're pretty anterior, uh, in the femur, it's going to be, you know, significantly shorter than if you were in the widest part of the femur, which is more posteriorly. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a good one to keep in mind, right? Because, you know, if it's a, a little bit long on the, the medial side, you know, yeah. uh, I feel like you, we don't get a whole lot of clinic time, but I feel yeah. like that, that patient is going to, going to be a little upset when they, everything kind of comes down. And they're still feeling something at the medial knee. And yeah, you, man. You, I'll tell you the, the people, the MCL really doesn't ch- take a joke right there. I mean, you're not going to tear an MCL, but people really don't like it when you got screw tips sticking out and really it can even be just a few millimeters. So, uh, take the time to, um, if you're not sure, use a depth gauge, right? You know, all the, all the drills are calibrated right now. And if you're going real quick, uh, you know, it'll cost you a, t- a trip back to the operating room in six months. If you put one in that's five millimeters too long, I can pretty well promise you that. Yeah. So, um, I have a question. Is there any time where you do the lock plating for your, for your type a distal femur fractures? Yeah, there absolutely is. I think, you know, like we mentioned, um, you know, sometimes if the fracture is too, too low, too distal, um, then I might consider a lateral lock plate where if I'm only going to get one, you know, I think one, maybe two interlocks, I'm probably going to choose a plate in that circumstance. I think for periprosthetic fractures, I'm going to use a plate. Um, I think um, really to be effective, you need to know how to do both for either, you know, A or C fractures. Um, And, um, you know, I think that my preference is probably a nail, but not by a lot. It's probably 60, 40, give or take um, for those A-type fractures. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you think about the approach for those, it's a little bit different, uh, than if you had a significant articular injury, you know, you can do basically a relatively limited lateral approach, you know, submuscular plating underneath the vastus. Um, you know, the downside or one, one mistake I think I see at times is people try to make these little mini approaches and that, that leads to poor plate positioning, which mm-hmm. goes back to your, your, your thought on the, um, the sort of the distal femoral anatomy. Um, it's really important. All the plates are made to fit along the anterior, just posterior to the articular surface in the anterior part of the femur. Um, and you can, if you don't get the plate where it belongs in the distal block, you will either end up with the plate, you know, you may have good alignment, but your plate is going to be way off the bone proximally. Um, or if you suck the plate down using non-locking screws in the shaft and you're going to, and the plate's too posterior, you're going to both probably mal-rotate the, the, the fracture and you're also going to, you know, give that sort of classic golf club deformity where you translate the articular block medially because you've pulled the shaft laterally to the plate after you fixed the articular block distally. Mm, so... You know, I, I remember doing some actually doing some questions on this, and I know this is real life things too. But there are a whole bunch of surgical pitfalls of you know if you have your plate too anterior versus too posterior versus too distal. And I think you just said a couple of them there. One is you know if you had the plate too posterior, you get that that dog that golf mm-hmm. club uh, deformity, which ends up leading to that medialization of the condylar segment. Um, I know some say you know if you have your plate too distal, you may get intraarticular screw placements. And you also may get a golf club deformity because the convex part of the plate pushes the condyles immediately. 
Um, you know, some some say if you had the plate two anterior, you can have unicortical screws. So I think you know the the, the position of the plate is uh, definitely very important when it comes to the treatment of uh, these fractures and making sure everything is aligned nicely. Absolutely, and I think you know even if it's a you know it's an acute fracture, it's an A type fracture, and you're going to choose to plate it. I think. Um, you know, getting the reduction first. So you, the plate can help you with the coronal plane alignment. The plate cannot help you with sagittal plane alignment, right? So you have to get the sagittal plane alignment correct before you even provisionally fix the plate to the bone. Um, and, you know, so you can do that, you know, with, with bumps under the distal segment to try to correct that apex posterior angulation we talked about. Um, you know, I will at times place sort of a temporary external fixer, or you can use the thermal distractor. Um, I usually go to the external fixer because I can put, you know, an X-fix pin in the shaft, I can put one pin in the, in the uh, tibia and I can pull, and that's a, an assistant who's never gonna get tired. Um, <laughs> and, you know, lock that out, okay? And then with bumps under the distal segment, you can help correct the sagittal plane. The other thing that I think that is really can be powerful using the external fixture is I can put, you know, it takes a little practice to get the placement right, but I can put a pin in that distal segment, you know, and then correct the sagittal plane deformity and lock that pin to my X fix to hold that for me while I'm then putting on my plate. Um, does that make sense? Have you guys seen or, or heard that? I think that's uh, one thing that it, there's a little bit of technique to it, but it can be a really powerful way to help hold your alignment while you're putting your plate on. Hey, can, you, can you explain <laughs> that one more time? Yeah. <laughs> I think we, we both <laughs> over here. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so, so for, to restore the length, pin in the femur, pin in the tibia, okay? And whether you want to do two bars in a clamp or one bar, I don't really care so much as long as you get the coronal plane alignment close, okay? And then I've got a bar that's over the front of the knee joint, right over the distal segment, okay? And then I can then, if there's still a significant sagittal plane deformity, I can put an X-fix pin. Usually I use a four millimeter pin, but you can use five. Um, independently into the epiphyseal block, the distal segment, okay? And you have to sort of anticipate where it's gonna end up. So if it's angled posterior, you know, apex posterior, you, your hand has to be aiming slightly distal when you put that pin in to be perpendicular to the, to the bone surface, okay? And then you use that pin, because now you've used, with that pin, you have control of that distal segment. And you correct the sagittal plane deformity and then you can hook that pin up to an X-fix clamp and hook that clamp to your X-fix, even if it's temporary. So just to repeat what you're saying. It's like a joystick. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Using that pin like a joystick. But you can hook it to the X-fix and you, it's, it's hands-free. Um, and it's, you know, especially, you know, not everybody operates in an academic center where you got, you know, resident or two residents and a fellow or whatever it may be. If you're doing this on your own, you know, that can be really the difference in winning and losing a case like this. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that too. I, I like a lot of these I've seen has been with um, like a universal femoral distractor. Mm -hmm. We'll use that, but yep. I like the the idea of having you know being able to kind of joystick that distal fragment to correct the sagittal yeah. uh, plane deformity. That's a that's a great yeah. idea. And then connecting yep. that to the lateral X fix. Yeah. Yep. No, it's it's it can be really pretty helpful. Um, 
So, you know, I'd usually put those, those X fixes direct anterior for that, for that indication, um, just because it's the easiest way to get that, that distal femoral pin to hook up to the X fix. Hmm. I know everybody has slightly different variations of what they do for their femoral pins, but in this case, I think the, the, the femoral pin has to be kind of straight A to P. And, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. You're, we talked about approaches or you test on them. I and you're saying for most of these, you can kind of just do your direct lateral approach. Do you ever do kind of that anterior lateral approach and you, and you, you kind of do a modification of the yeah, lateral parabatal orthotomy? Yeah, um, You know, there's different ideas. Um, you know, some people will. So if you're going to do like, say, a, a relatively simple articular fracture, um, but you're then going to put the joint together and nail, then I might do a lateral parapatellar approach. Okay. And so just skirt the lateral side of the patella such that I can sublux the patella enough to put the joint together. And then I can, you know, not have a very lateral incision that I'm trying to put a nail in through, which can be challenging. So lateral parapatellar is useful in some circumstances. Other times I'll do the more classic sort of swashbuckler approach where, you know, you come along the lateral board of the patella and then down along the lateral alice so that you have, you know, access to the plating surface of the distal femur and the articular surface. Um, and in that circumstance, what I'll often do is uh, rather than try to, you know, I'll have sort of a, a slightly different deep dissection. I'll undermine the skin edge, maybe not a lot, like we're talking maybe a centimeter, so you don't want to end up with dead skin there. But to get over the tendon so I can split the tendon to do a retrograde nail if I'm going to nail in that circumstance. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think those are your options, right? So direct lateral approach where you're going to just apply a plate, okay? Where if you want to look at the joint, if there's an articular injury that needs a reduction, then you got to look at it to make it correct. Unless it's truly non-displaced and you're going to put a clamp and put a lag screw in. Uh, that would be the only circumstance where I don't necessarily open it. Uh, but if you have a displaced articular fracture, then you want to be able to see it. Okay. And 90% of the time that is best seen through sort of either a lateral parapatellar approach or a more extensile uh, swashbuckler or a modified anterolateral approach where you have good access. Um, you know, we'll say there's one sort of caveat to that is if, the vast majority of the articular injury and or there is a medial displaced Hoffa fracture, then you may have to change course a little bit and consider something like a subvastus approach from the medial side to put the joint together. Um, and then either a separate lateral incision for relatively small to put a plate on or uh, use a nail, uh, and you can use it. You can get a nail in through a subvastus approach. So it just depends. You, know, you have to understand the fracture and where, you know, what's the that the famous bank robber, right? You got to go where the money is, um, and uh, where the money is is where you need to see to directly reduce the joint surface. Okay, I like that. Yep, got to get to get to see see everything so that you can properly reduce it. it makes perfect sense. On, I guess one of the last things that I w wanted to bring up, uh, which is probably very important in just the actual technique of uh, using some plates with these types of fractures, uh, how long do you usually make the, the plate uh, when, you're, when you're fixing these types of injuries? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really important point. I think um, 
you know, when lateral lock plating was first introduced, it was uh, with the list plate uh, and they had unicortical fixation, relatively flexible titanium plate, uh, and they reported very low rates of non-union. Now, as the as the, everybody got into the lateral lock plating game, so to speak, uh, people started making plates thicker and bicortical screws, and we kind of figured out that short plates, right? So most distal femur fractures are comminuted fractures through the metaphysis. Not all, but ninety percent. Um, and so for that reason, they need a bridging construct, right? So we're not going for an anatomic reduction with a rigid internal fixation, you know, construct with a lag screw and a neutralization plate. These comminuted fractures need bridging fixation or relative stability construct. And that can be done with either a nail or a bridge plate. Okay. And so in order for a bridge plate to function correctly, you have to have an adequate working length. Um, and that means a longer plate. Um, so there's a study that, um, Bill Ritchie and some of his friends did that looked at, um, you know, risk factors for non-union and among them was a plate shorter than nine holes. Okay. Uh, and so I would tell you that you really should have a very good reason to use a plate shorter than that. And I can almost never think of one. Okay. Uh, you know, really the only good reason that I know of would be a, a really simple fracture pattern that I lagged together and I still was going to have, you know, four or five holes above the fracture to put, you know, neutralization fixation for that side of the fracture. Right. But long, you know, you know longer plates are, are going to give you a more effective bridging construct and a little bit more flexible construct to avoid, uh, avoid non-union. Avoid. And and I'm glad you just said that because I was actually just going to go into what are some of the complications or the things that uh, we need to just be on the lookout for after, you know, we've fixed these patients and, and you know, what are some of the complications that um, are kind of common with these distal femur fractures? Yeah, I mean, I think there's unfortunately a lot, right? So I think... Um... <laughs> The, uh, you know, malalignment or malunion, uh, I think, uh, you know, when we, we, we kind of skipped over this part, but in terms in the coronal plane, the distal femur has, you know, the lateral, the anatomic lateral distal femoral angle is anywhere from 81 to plus or minus two degrees. Okay. So that means slight valgus through the distal femur. You make up some of that through some slight varus in the proximal tibia for an overall slight valgus of maybe five, six degrees. Um, and so I think it's important to know, number one, what's normal for that patient. So when you, when I start a complex distal femur fracture, assuming that the other side is not broken, one of my very first moves is when the patient's asleep in the operating room is to get a, as good an x-ray of that other side as I can. And I'm going to measure out their angles so that I know what I'm trying to recreate. Okay. That's, that's the beauty of fracture surgery is usually you got a matching set. Um, and if you're not sure what normal is for that patient, you go look at the other side and they'll give you a lot of clues. Um, so I think, you know, avoiding malalignment would be one, you know, so those common deformities would be varus, medial translation of the distal articular block, and then the apex posterior angulation that we've been talking about. Um, so that's sort of one. I think that when you have a malaligned fracture, you're more likely to see your, your fixation construct fail 
more quickly because you've, you know, when you malreduce a fracture, any inherent stability that's going to exist from the fracture reduction is, is gone. Right. And so that's actually a pretty significant part of the, of a fracture fixation construct is sort of the inherent stability that you restore when you get a good reduction. Um, so that would be sort of one. Okay. Non-union is probably the thing that is the most commonly talked about. Um, you know, and it ranges anywhere from those original papers back in the 90s from, you know, maybe three, four percent all the way up to as high as 30 percent. OK, and so there's some risk factors that are associated with non-union. So obesity, open fracture, uh, short plates. Uh, there's at least one paper that says you should think about using titanium instead of stainless for your lateral lock plate. There are other papers that said that we don't think that that matters, but that's something to think about anyway. Um, and so trying to be conscientious with both your reduction and the way that you apply the implant, I think are, are really important in trying to prevent non-union. And I think that the, um, you know, the augmented, uh, fixation for distal femur concept is one, you know, when we, when we look at a lot of these fractures have significant combination through the metaphysis. Okay. And if we're trying to fix that with a laterally based implant, you know, you're putting the, the plate is at a biomechanical disadvantage. Okay. You're trying to, to prevent shortening and varus angulation from the lateral side of the femur. Okay. And if you think about, you know, how you might most effectively do that, it's obviously going to be from the medial side of the femur. Yes, sir. Uh, and, and so there are times and places where it's appropriate and probably even benefit, you know, significantly beneficial to either, place a medial plate, which can be done through a relatively minimally invasive technique, or one thing that is probably equally biomechanically sound is an intramedullary nail to try to, you know, the concept is to substitute for that medial cortex that is not competent, right? To protect your lateral implant, to prevent that, that bending moment through the working length of your plate between your most proximal point of fixation in the distal segment and the most distal point of fixation in the proximal segment, right? So, you know, you probably have seen those, those videos of somebody holding the popsicle stick, okay? And the, the longer the working length, the more mm -hmm. flex you have to your popsicle stick, right? But if you hold it close, you know, to the center on both sides, then you, you have a really stiff construct, okay? And so we want, we know mm -hmm. that we need these longer working lengths to get a relative stability construct. But it's, you know, all fracture healing is a race between fatigue failure of the implant on one hand, okay, and, right. and bone healing, right? And who's going to win, right? Is bone healing yeah. going to win or is the fatigue failure of the implant going to win, right? And so the idea of augmenting distal femoral fixation with a nail or a medial plate uh, helps tip the scale back in, in our favor uh, to allow the bone healing to win, rather than the than fatigue failure of my implant, whether it be through breaking locking screws or breaking the plate uh, through the comminuted zone in the metaphysis. Right. Man, I, I think that was um, excellent. I think that was great. Uh, I think that was a great talk overview on uh, distal femur fractures. You know, we kind of spoke, we spoke about a lot. We spoke about what to look for on physical exams, open wounds. We talked about the anatomy of the distal femur. Uh, we talked about the different treatment options. We talked about lock plating. We talked about approaches. We talked about what if you're 
uh, plate position and, and how that can um, lead to different types of deformities. So uh, Dr. Spiller, I think this was a, a great talk and, uh, you know, we really, really appreciate you for coming on and, and talking about uh, distal femur fractures. Yeah, absolutely, guys. I really appreciate it. And, I, you know, hopefully you can tell I really enjoy, I enjoy talking about it, enjoy fixing them. So hopefully that some of that wears off. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so, right? Uh, I'll probably have some one of these by the end of the week, I'm sure. There you uh, go. So I'll probably have to listen back to this one. Um, before you go, we always like to ask our, our guests, is there a way for our listeners to reach out to you where there's some kind of social media tag or either a website or email address or something like yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't use uh, social media for professional reasons. I, I'm kind of an old guy that way, I guess. But um, <laughs> my email address is uh, caspitler, S-P-I-T-L-E-R, at uabmc.edu. And I'm happy to uh, talk to, to anybody about distal femur fractures or any other fracture in, in, for that matter. Absolutely awesome. So thank you again, Dr. Spittler. And thank you for all our listeners tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed this talk and learned something. Uh, we'll see you guys back next week. Everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode on distal femur fractures with Dr. Spittler. He did a great job talking about distal femur fractures, uh, approaches, you know, pitfalls, surgical pitfalls. You know, this is a great episode overall. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And for those that are returning listeners, thank you again for listening. And please tell a colleague or a friend. All right. And if you have an extra five seconds, please leave us a review in iTunes or whatever you are listening in on. And until next time.